NetSparker, the developers of desktop and cloud-based web application security scanners that enable you to automatically identify vulnerabilities in your web applications and web services. NetSparker scanners employ a unique and dead-accurate vulnerability scanning engine that automatically verifies vulnerabilities with their proof of concept. For more information, visit them on the web at netsparker.com or email at contact at netsparker.com. Logarithms NetMon Freemium delivers real-time network visibility to quickly identify emerging threats in your IT environment. NetMon Freemium is a free commercial-grade network forensics and traffic analytics solution. You can use NetMon Freemium's powerful capabilities to search against all observed network traffic, identify abnormal traffic patterns and application usage, and quickly analyze full packet captures. Take the first step towards real-time network visibility. Visit logarithm.com forward slash freemium to learn more and download it today. And welcome back to the show to discuss the security news. Boom. Wow, that was good timing. Or not. That was beautiful, Larry. That was absolutely beautiful. <sighs> and the music goes on. And the music plays on. Yeah. Uh, well, before we get started, the news, there was a breaking news nine hours ago, but somehow I missed it. And it's not necessarily computer security related, but I thought it was kind of fascinating. Um, the... Uh, the uh, Bulletin of Atomic Scientists uh, announced at 10 o'clock this morning, Eastern, uh, that the doomsday clock is now set to two minutes to midnight, the most dire reading since 1953 at the what height of the, the reasoning? War. What was the reasoning? What was the purpose behind moving it that much closer? Uh, let's see. Reflecting an uneasy state of geopolitical affairs is one way that is, uh, some folks have put it. Um let's see where was the other quote um uh trump's nuclear bravado and the world's inaction on climate change yeah basically, basically we got a bunch of idiots running the planet. As it sorry again, Jeff, keith? go ahead <laughs> go ahead keith I, I i was not being positive at all i was basically saying hey we've got a bunch of idiots at the helm is what i'm saying then that's all i'm gonna say hmm. That's pretty much what my sentiment was as well. It's you mean the state of affairs is is happening as it exists today. What do you what do you know? We put ourselves in this situation. Yep, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Uh, next story. Next story. <laughs> well, not even really a story, but I just thought that was kind of fascinating. Um, but uh, some other fun things going on. Um, Keith, you got a bunch of stories in 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 the wiki. Um, tell yeah. me about the British fifteen year old. And no, not oh, like man. that. I like that. This was uh, <laughs> nice, story number nice two. Nice opener. So, yeah, uh, so story number two was, uh, was interesting because a British 15-year-old um, basically managed to gain access to intelligence operations in Afghanistan and Iran by pretending to be the head of the CIA. So, uh, the, yeah, it's just like, it, it's unbelievable, what? right? Like, how could a British, especially like British accent, like unless they're a really good voice actor, I don't know how it's possible to even sound like um, uh, you know, former director Brennan or, or whoever it was that they were impersonating, right? Hello, but, I'm um, the director of the CIA. <laughs> what? Right. <laughs> or so, you can say that you're, you're on behalf of him. Yeah, I know, right? Right. So it, it was a, a young man by the name of Kane Gamble, um, used social engineering. He was actually uh, uh, at least charged with as part of this having founded the Crackers with Attitude organization back in 2015. <laughs> Uh, which he uh, states as it all started by me getting more and more annoyed about how corrupt and cold-blooded the U.S. government are, so I decided to do something about it. And for him, that was, uh, in this case, both impersonating uh, John Brennan, 
the former uh, director of the CIA, as well as the, uh, let's see here, Mark Giuliano, who is the agency's uh, FBI or FBI agency's deputy director uh, at one point as well. So needless to say, he did a whole lot of social engineering and got a whole lot of uh, intel that he probably shouldn't have had. Wow, what, what can, can we, we even say to that? <laughs> I mean, a, fa a wow. failure of, of processes to validate who you're talking with, and but at the same time, given as we were talking about the uh, the watch getting closer to midnight, a lot of people are actually afraid of confronting people, especially when you have a very hostile environment. And now that we are in an even more hostile, more brash environment. People probably are afraid of kind of like questioning or stopping uh, somebody in a position of power and asking them and trying to confirm if they're really them and running the risk of them getting angry or and putting their careers at jeopardy. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good point, Carlos. I mean, y y you nailed it, right? I mean, we're we're definitely in we're definitely in a much harsher world right now. It's it's a shame. Uh, and, uh, people are afraid, uh, and, um, you know, my, my advice to people is don't be step up and, uh, question authority all the time. It's, it's your, it's your citizen duty, frankly, uh, in, in many cases to just go ahead and ask questions. Yes. I mean, or alternately you could just ignore authority entirely as in kind of my story number one, which is uh, a woman that basically has evaded airport security on what seems to be a number of occasions and uh, always seems to end up in Heathrow airport for some reason or another. Uh, I don't know if anyone happened to catch this. It was a, an article earlier this week about a woman, Marilyn Hartman, who has now actually been um, detained at this point after a four series different times, of, four yeah, different times. Yeah. And, and this is, goes back to uh, several years now, it seems like, where she has basically walked right past TSA, no no passport, oh, yeah. no airline ticket, walked right past the agents at the desk, got on the plane and flown somewhere. And, and no, numerous times now, Heathrow. But um, yeah, she's she's done this a number of yeah, times. In, in fact, people are asking to have her uh, keynote at DEF CON. Well, what's interesting that, about this as well, though, is... is um, what is apparently the case is they have cited in the article is they believe that her activities is not out of malice or uh, some sort of, you know, strife, but out of actual mental illness uh, that she seems to keep kind of like seeking this attention in some way hmm. uh, that yeah. that she is now boarding planes. In fact, she has been caught uh, as many times as she has been successful also. So yeah, that's uh, really, it's uh, really interesting. <clears throat> Yep. yep. We should put her on the red team. <clears throat> yeah, right. she's definitely good at social engineering, it appears. Nope. If she yep. wants attention, what better attention than going into a conference and talking about it or probably writing a book or a manual on it? Mm -hmm. No kidding, right? Well, it also begs the question about security controls, right? We were just talking about that with John. It's like you had to have some security controls. Well, I mean, we've all been through airports a lot lately. I know that you guys travel a lot for work. Uh, so... Mm -hmm. To be able to Just get that far is, and, and there's cameras everywhere in the airport, right? Like I'm not, I'm not crazy. But here nobody's watching them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. To, to make a... to make matters worse, reading through this article in 2016, despite having been arrested 
whichever, more than once already, despite wearing a device that tracked her movements. So she had an ankle bracelet with GPS. She went back to Chicago O'Hare's airport where she was arrested. She made it to the airport. Wow. Again. <laughs> I'm suddenly reminded of the Simpsons where they have that sign that says, do not enter or don't. I'm not, I'm a sign, not a police officer, right? Like <laughs> it, it's the same sort of problems. It's not enough people, not enough process, not enough people actually manning the technology that you've purchased to keep people safe, to and, prevent and, this from happening. And not only that, many times, like the example of the sign, you're hoping that that alone is enough psychological deterrence for something to not happen. It's like when you, you, you know, see, oh, this is a gun-free zone. And I'm going like, yeah, hmm. And I have a Glock 19 in my hip, and nobody knows that I have one. I have my CCW, and I'm able to walk into the zone for five, ten minutes and get out. For me, it's not a psychological deterrent. For a criminal, it won't be. Uh, it's like when you see a sign, hey, surveillance uh, active in this area. And the thing is that when you go to most stores, surveillance is forensics. That's mm -hmm. all it is. In many places, for, uh, surveillance cameras are for forensics, are for after the fact. Yep. So you have evidence of what actually happened to aid in an investigation. You, you, see, you see the sign. You see the sign. You know you're going in there, and you know you're being recorded on camera, and you still pick your nose anyways. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I do it all the time in, in uh, <laughs> elevators. I see the camera and go like... <laughs> yeah so so um but but Carlos has a really really good point and that is um you know you know that is a lot of what we see in terms of the deployed technologies process people is actually uh, psychological deterrence and not real um Im impediments or real barriers right um the minority is going to be some sort of w real barrier but the rest of it i mean you, you, you know you look at TSA you know, God love them, but a lot of that is psychological deterrent. Yeah. And, you know, not a lot of that is actually real in terms of, uh, you know, effective uh, barrier. But, you know, that's enough to probably knock out about 90% of the threat. I mean, that's a that's a uh, total table napkin kind of figure that I threw out. But Oh, yeah. How, um, how, have you watched the um, – when the TSA puts out all of this stuff that they have caught people trying to board air, uh, airplanes with, fake grenades – Loaded handguns, knives, ninja stars, sword canes, actual swords. They do stop quite a bit of things, but also something gets, uh, has to go, get through. Something is always going mm -hmm. to get through it because you have humans in the process. They get tired. Probably they had a fight with their wife that day, and they're all PCN. Their their heads is somewhere else, and they're not doing their job properly. Uh, other times, hey, they have crappy jobs that people hate them, and that sometimes gets under their skin, and sometimes just worse them down, and they're not doing their job as effective as possible. Right. Exactly. Still, we still have that human factor there. And no matter how many processes you're going to put, it is not going to be 100% able to block anything. It's like when we talk with customers. We always tell them, set up your controls. They're good. But always assume breach. Right. What, how are you right. going to manage what they're in? Same thing with TSA. 
assume breach, do you have layered uh, layers of control? In this case, that lady was very good at going through the different layers. She went through TSA. She went through the ticketing booth. I don't know if she was able to even get to customs. If she was able to get to customs, hot off to her. <laughs> I have to say. I think that's actually where she was getting caught was um, she was at Heathrow and she, she was actually getting caught trying to come back through customs in London. Um, so that's, that's ultimately, I think, a number of times where she was, was caught was uh, customs. Yeah, but she got in the airplane. That's that's that part that people miss. Can, can if, you imagine if, being if, the person that got off the plane? Can you do the most damage? It is once you're in the airplane. In fact, there are three different places that you can do the most damage. Uh, but one of the places that you can do the most damage is actually on the airplane. Right, right. And speaking of doing damage, um, have you guys been looking at how now Dell, uh, HP, and Lenovo are all telling you do not patch? for uh specter and uh jo yeah. joff might also have this one uh for intel as well don't install our patch right yeah, oh, yeah that's, that's right for me has that's been, right uh, yeah it's, it's i mean my, there's a, uh, there's a performance issue. negative one uh by yeah, the way this, this, <laughs> yes. this, this is a performance <laughs> issue ultimately um but uh you know keith go ahead man yeah run run your story it's the same one as mine so so uh, what this is in this case is Dell has basically told its customers as of Tuesday um, and HP, or I should say as of Tuesday, HP as well are advising customers not to apply the BIOS updates that resolve Spectre variant 2 vulnerabilities due to numerous problems for users, including performance loss, boot issues, reboot issues, and general system stability. Uh, so that's uh, CV, uh, CVE 2017-5715. Uh, off of that actual article that I've linked is a nice uh, cloudblogs.microsoft.com article that actually talks about the performance hits as they affect the different operating systems uh, per uh, chipset that you're actually working with. Mm. So I'll include that in the show notes. But um, good examples like Windows 7 and 8 on older silicon that's a 2015 era PCs, Haswell or older. Uh, basically, you, most users uh, will notice a decrease in system performance. Windows 10 systems on those same 2015 era PCs, Haswell or older. Uh, benchmarks show significant slowdowns, uh, so ultimately decrease in system performance. Windows 10 on newer silicon, so 2016 Skylake, Cabulake, or newer, uh, basically shows single-digit slowdowns, but they don't expect users to notice a change because of the percentages are reflected in milliseconds. So only if you are on the very latest should this patch very minorly affect you, but will still affect you. Uh, Windows Server, on the other hand, on any silicon, especially any I/O intensive application, shows a more significant performance impact when you're able when you enable the mitigations to isolate untrusted code within a Windows Server instance. Yay! Ouch. Yay! Well, you know, I mean that that's a fact, right? I mean, the the the, the reality is, you know, you're disabling speculative execution. Speculative ex execution was entirely designed to increase performance. So, guess what, folks? you're going to get a performance impact. Sure. Um, yes, especially you know, in virtualized environments where yeah, you have exactly. multiple machines sharing one single core. So yeah, for, for, also... for me, it's been a nightmare at work because we have customers that blue screen all of their boxes by pushing the patch without testing. Oh, um, whoops. Uh, yeah, yeah. I've, uh, this one was an anecdotal story from a sysadmin uh, that shared with us 
not, not a customer, but somebody that simply posted into one of the forums that, hey, I just blue screened 200 of my boxes and they were running Athlon systems in a, in, in a university. They simply pushed the patch without testing. Uh, then you have AV vendors using not so legit calls to get into the kernel and do stuff that they shouldn't be doing. Then you have other programmers actually, not, not only AV vendors, but other programmers kind of jumping through hoops to get the most out of the CPU and doing stuff that they shouldn't be doing, which also affected this. And then you have uh, virtual environments where not only are you supposed to patch the host, but you have to go to each <laughs> one of the different VMs, upgrade their version to the latest version, in the case of Hyper-V version 8, you have to upgrade all of them. Oh, but it broke my Windows 2008. Oh, sorry, but you have to upgrade if you want to be secure. So it's, uh, it's a pain. It's a painful patch. And the thing is that you're only getting snippets of the memory. You're only getting snippets of that possible code. I know that people say, oh, but that's enough to probably get a password. Probably get a password. Oh, that's enough to probably uh, get some key material. Probably get some key material. Is it, uh, in my in my personal opinion, I think it's been way overhyped. Uh, do to the risk of the real impact, but um, it's been a very painful one. And it kind of brings us back to kind of like Intel AMT. Like when you have stuff in silicon, stuff in hardware, how do you inventory that shit? It's hard, you know, because Intel comes out with a patch. Oh, here's my patch, but now my Dell XPS is uh, BIOS 1.61, but then my Inspiron is patch 1B45A, and then you got to have this gigantic table of inventory of all of your machines what version of BIOS are you running? What chips are, are they running? What version of the OS? What version of AV or EDR solution am I running? Is the, it, this registry key set yes, no? It is very, very painful, even for a very well-prepared uh, IT shop. What's interesting as well is, is last week uh, on Application Security Weekly, we noted that VirtualBox had pushed patches for this, but as of uh, last Thursday, VMware said is it's actually delaying microcode uh, changes because of the fundamental code that coordinates between hardware and low-level software uh, is that microcode. The updates, because of the problems with Intel's firmware patches, are basically keeping them from pushing patches for VMware, which runs a lot, like most i would say of the virtual machine instances out there yeah in fact all of all of the machines in my lab <laughs> same <laughs> same i just look at my servers like oh the person boys, whom you're you're trying to is currently unavailable uh-oh i'm hello welcome to skype call testing service <laughs> <laughs> You know how many times in the early days of the show we heard that? God damn. Uh, Joff dropped off and they're apparently trying to call him back. We're sorry. So interesting, Dave Kennedy was actually quoted in the Wired article. That's my story number zero. (laughs) We've never seen such an expansive bug like this that impacts literally every major processor. That's... Oh, but... Not not only every major processor, but every freaking OS. Even phones are affected. We're seeing it everywhere. 
Yeah, this is well. So, and as Larry, I think you mentioned either last week or the week uh, week before, there are two other embargoed vulnerabilities that are yes. speculated to be in the same class of vulnerabilities as these two. Yes, and they have logos already, which is awesome. And names. I hate logos. Well, the, the Carlos, the the ones that were kind of interesting about this from last week was that the uh, the logos are very very telling, even though they're under embargo as to what they may be for. Hmm. Now. Well, one important thing, uh, even though I hate logos because that means that I have to rush and I have to do what we call a rapid response at work to get checks for all of that stuff. At the same time, when you look at customers and you do interviews and um, as I was talking with somebody from Microsoft, when they look at their telemetry data, actually people patch faster things that have logos and have names that what they do that do not have them. In fact, many times, according to some of the uh, Microsoft telemetry data, they'll patch stuff that have the logo and not patch the stuff that doesn't have it. So they'll have, they'll patch something but forgot about uh, uh, 10 other, or not 10, probably two or three other RCEs or remote code execution bugs in their system, but this one had a logo, so they had to patch it. Yep. They had to address that one because it was in the news and completely ignoring the other ones. And that kind of is, uh, is, and some of the guys from Microsoft were actually telling them, see, you were bitching about us putting everything into one single patch and pushing that patch to people, this prevents this. And then when we started seeing systems getting blue screen and stuff because of that patch, I was like, see? Now that shit actually prevents me from properly keeping my systems up and running. It's a damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? Uh, it's a situation right. where it's almost a human condition, right? The the uh, fluffy animal is the one that gets, uh, evolutionarily speaking, survives because humans make it into a pet, even <laughs> if it has no reason to actually survive. So it's it's the uh, the bugs with you know names and logos that are easily referenceable. Uh, at the water cooler, they get patched. It's just a human condition at this point. Frightening. Frightening. All right. <clears throat> so speaking a little bit of uh, uh, folly, uh, the story that I've got in um, was kind of interesting and was actually a, a follow-up um, to a story or more continued folly. Um, a couple weeks ago, we had uh, Kevin Finisterre on the show to talk about his uh, bug bounty issues uh, with DJI <clears throat> in that he found a, a ton of stuff uh, wrong with uh, DJI, including a bunch of vulnerabilities. Um, he eventually uh, was able to f do full system compromise of DJI's infrastructure, um, not the drones, but they're actually corporate infrastructure and a few other things, um, reported it to uh, the, the Bug Bounty program, and uh, he was offered $30,000 as long as he signed an agreement to accept the money, um, and uh, the, the agreement was just absolutely ridiculous, and it was unenforceable, uh, and a bunch of other stuff. He came on the show and talked about it. Um, but DGI continues to sort of try to discredit Kevin, um, there were some things about some of the articles that they came out that were basically saying, yeah, these things that the, this researcher found in these other findings, uh, are completely untrue, which in fact they are true. Uh, and the most recent was, 
that uh, DJI tried to issue a cease and desist um, with a DMCA uh, takedown um, against GitHub for a, at least one uh, forked GitHub repository of uh, DJI's code. The one that was out there that had keys in it that allowed decryption and re-encryption of firmware. Toronto and it was out there for two years. It was there like for two years. Kevin told him about it. He had forked the repository to his own repository, to, to his own GitHub account. Yep. And, and not only that, it, it was used by some of us drone aficionados to get non-approved firmware on our NASAs. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And be able to, uh, you know, enterprising hackers could uh, use that uh, encryption key to both encrypt and decrypt copies of the firmware to remove specific no-fly zone areas. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Like, like, like if you're ISIS and you remove all of Iraq and Syria, <clears throat> so you mm-hmm. can use your DJI drone to drop bombs. Yeah, yeah. Any of that stuff. But out there for two years, uh, Kevin forked the repository. And then uh, DJI uh, sent a uh, DCMCA, DMCA takedown notice to GitHub uh, to take it down. And uh, they suspended his uh, repository, his fork repository, uh, investigated the matter, uh, 10-day review process. And uh, day after Martin Luther King Day uh, was the day after the end, but Martin Luther King Day was a holiday. Um, so they, um, they looked at it and... Um, they reinstated his repository, his fork repository, because they looked at their own terms of service and say, look, if you put stuff on GitHub and you make it public, everyone has a right to fork it and has rights to it. And based on our terms of service, you agree to that as soon as you, you make it a public repository. So do we know do we know what license uh, they were licensing it under? Was it like you know Apache, MIT, like, or was it some sort of special license? Because that itself should offer some protections to people that choose to have or forget that they have open repositories for in terms of use, right? Like right. they might not be able to let him actually use that code to then do the things that he, is speculated he could do with it. Um, that's not to say that people will, you know, obey the sign because it's not a police officer. Right. Um, but the, the whole DGI thing, I mean, again, full disclosure, I work for Bug Crowd. It's a bug bounty platform. And just yeah. looking at DGI and seeing this happen is is kind of um, sad to the extent that there are so many options available to them to do a bug bounty program the right way. And mm-hmm. self-managing a bug bounty program, I mean, Uber does it, we've seen what's come of that. DGI does it, we've seen what's coming of that now and what has come of that. It, it really shows that running a program by yourself... Especially when you don't have any experience doing so? Yeah, it's it's just like, there are experts who have done this for years. And mm-hmm. to the extent that there are programs that have been incredibly successful with just as talented individuals performing the research uh, that could find and report the same sorts of things. I mean, quite frankly, uh, open GitHub repositories as a bug bounty researcher myself is one of the things I look for. Uh-huh. I, I look to see what's in the history, uh-huh. right? Like it's not just what's on the repository, but it's 
what code has changed? What's what's the actual changes to the code over time? And I can use things like uh, there's open source tools like Gitrob to go and look for that information. Yep. So, um, and boy, are there so many mistakes done in Git. I, I've done it myself. I've accidentally pushed passwords mm-hmm. in test scripts. I've pushed API keys and then editing all of that stuff in Git. It's a pain to remove those entries. Yeah, it's just this even is just when story trying to be careful. Yeah, so uh, Keith, to to answer your question about what license they were under, uh, I don't think they specifically stated a license because gotcha. it was supposed to be their internal proprietary stuff that they accidentally clicked the little oh send to public type thing. Um, you would, yeah. You would think that uh, GitHub, at least if I don't, if I recall correctly, when you're actually running a, a GitHub repo, especially if it's public and you don't have a license or you don't have things like a README, it actually it gets pretty in your face about that. It's not like it's a next next done situation. It's like, right. hey, um, please create no. the README. Please, no, please it's add not, a license. It's, 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 yeah. it's not that aggressive. No. Uh, it, it, it's just a small banner that you're getting at the top. Now, it does, it, it is very aggressive when you have something private and you want mm. to move it to public. You actually even have to type the entire name of the project. Yep. Which, which is something that I fought <clears throat> with people that put very long yep. names in projects with mixed cases. I'm going like, don't do that shit. Yep. So because then when I have to move it to public, I have to match the case and everything. No, it's perfect. It's on a page that you can copy and paste it. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, not that I've done it. Um, but uh, no. So to to answer the licensing question a little bit, section five of GitHub's terms of service. And I'll read it. By setting your repositories to be viewed publicly, you agree to allow others to view and fork your repositories. Um, blah, 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 blah. If you set your pages and repositories to be viewed publicly, you grant each user of GitHub a non-exclusive worldwide, worldwide license to use, display, and perform your content through GitHub service and to re- reproduce your content solely on GitHub as permitted through GitHub's functionality. For example, through forking. Hmm. Well, there it is. I well, mean, there's the license, right? And what's interesting too is, like, to some extent, at one point, this had to be created as a public repository, right? Like, yeah. when you go to create it, that's the default repository type to begin with. But it makes me wonder how that became public anyway, especially if it was two years old. Like, was it once a private repo that was made public maliciously I, I, or I by su- accident? I suspect that it was probably a public repo from get go. Yeah, that would be my guess as well. And to that end, it's like nobody bothered to check the permissions. I mean, when you were working with a private repo, it says so. Like inside of your repositories itself, it says private. And you would think that if they have other private repos that they would say, that one doesn't say private. Something's probably wrong here. Yep. Yep. (laughs) So to quote the article, what are the lessons here? Train your people how GitHub works. Check check and check again that your private repos really are set to private and above all don't put encryption keys on the internet ever and never push to master (laughs) (laughs) go google for yolo github oh yeah yeah just uh so many such a train wreck there yep so uh um Where is it? 
Yep, there we is go. This guy, is this so, guy trying to tell us something? <laughs> no, so uh, the uh, YOLO alias is uh, alias YOLO to git commit dash AM deal with it, in quotes. Ampersand, ampersand, git push dash F origin master. It's whatever's there, push it now, deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. Sounds like a nightmare. Yep. So uh, what else we got? What else we got here? So we've got uh, some uh, hackers in probably Russia. Uh, We're infecting gas pumps with code to cheat customers. Uh, In effect, if I were to give this a summarization or a summary, this is quite literally the situation where someone had the great idea of let's just office space the pennies on the dollar <laughs> or the, the, the nine tenths of a nine tenths of a cent right right and effectively so they actually ended up uh somewhere scamming the customers of different uh pumps somewhere in the order of three to seven percent per gallon of gas pumped now what it was is the programmer who was arrested in russia uh was writing the software and selling it to the uh people who were at working the gas pumps right the people that were at the station itself to skim from the actual uh, purchase of gas. And so for me, uh, what's interesting about the end of the article is it says, it's unclear what tipped Russian authorities off to the scam, but personally, I speculate, someone forgot to pay off the authorities. Oof. Oof. So was this, was the, the, the skimming, was it skim off the dollar amount and put it somewhere? So charge so much reflect this on the the output and then put this other stuff somewhere or was it deduct the actual dispensed content by three percent so it says you're getting a gallon but you're only getting 97 percent of a gallon i i would presume that it's probably the latter now Mm. it doesn't really get into it in the article as to exactly how this software works but it wasn't like a traditional skimmer either like a car-based skimmer it was quite literally software on the pump itself I'm guessing that it's the second because of the fact that uh, things like delivery, for example, right, those sort of metrics are tracked pretty closely as to when someone needs to come and deliver more gasoline to the pumps. Yep. And this seems to have been going on for a while where nobody noticed the change. So my my guess would be, Larry, in this case is it was you were paying for the full gallon, but it was dispensing 97% of a gallon and therefore – uh, everything else read as seven tenths being dispensed, even though that's not what you paid for. Yep. And uh, interestingly, enough, and, and I'm thinking about this and, and how they would, would do this type of attack, because I know all the pumps that I go to here in the U.S. have this thing, the stamp on it from the local authority through the local weights and measure, measures and that they go and inspect once every once, once a year or twice or every two years to say that when you dispense a gallon of gas that you actually got a gallon of gas. Right. But... That window is not every day, and it's not regular, or it's regular. It's you look at the pump, and it says last inspected on, you know, February of 2017. So you know and, that you have a one-year window to conduct this attack. And the other side of it too, I mean, talk about insider threat, right? It was literally the the pump or the station, like employees that were installing the software on the pumps. So. Quite literally, it's not like you can even report this to the person that's, you know, at the cashier's desk to say, hey, you're not actually dispensing all the gas that I'm paying for because they're in on it. Yeah. Okay, sir. We'll investigate. 
crumple, crumple, right. crumple. Exactly, exactly. So, I don't know, interestingly enough, the FSB came down on them. So, my guess, they just forgot to pay somebody. Yep. So, Keith, it looks like it's just you and I now. I think uh, Carlos has uh, disappeared. Wow. So, uh, so, we have taken over the show. Yeah, uh, yeah. Still here. Oh, wait. You're here. Oh, there he is. I was going to say, down I'm to the here. final two okay. contenders so, on the island. I, I see uh, <laughs> I, I see, I see no camera. That's why it's just a black screen, just like Joff. So, I was like, hmm. Uh, you're not seeing my camera? No. We, we we were before, okay. but all of a sudden it went away. Uh, oh, okay. I, I see why. It somehow selected uh, the FaceTime camera and not... Oh, now uh, we have a different angle. <laughs> yes, different actually angle not seeing my, uh, my Logitech for some reason. I blame a four-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she Pwned. is pretty crafty. Pwned. Yeah. Yep. So, so speaking of pwned, Larry, OnePlus is oh, yeah. that they, had, they were hacked and exposed something on the order of 40,000 or potentially up to 40,000 customers. Uh, interestingly, uh, the thing that I noticed about this was it was a malicious script inserted on the company's pages that captured the sending of data directly from the user's browser, did not affect PayPal payments, mm-hmm. uh, those who had previously stored credit data uh, with OnePlus, but any of those new customers that went to the page were basically having their data siphoned off based on a malicious script. Curious to know how it got there. Yeah, wonderful. Like I, I, I almost bought a OnePlus, uh, one of their phones recently, so I'm happy I didn't. <laughs> I bought yeah. my OnePlus One on the used market, so yay! <laughs> and my my guess would be it would be interesting. So a few weeks ago on Application Security Weekly, Paul and I covered uh, what was a hypothetical scenario of someone building a malicious NPM uh, package that would be like kind of bundled into other packages Mm -hmm. that are used for graphics or front end development. Uh, And then from there would be able to siphon off things like credit card data. Lo and behold, we here we have a malicious script inserted into a company's page capturing said data. Kind of interesting. I'd be interested to know Mm -hmm. what OnePlus's page is actually built with. uh, And And who built it? Yeah, that's the other thing, right? Yeah. Like, who's checking for these things? Yeah, we, contract, of... we contracted that to a third party. Yeah, in, in, in fact, I remember uh, going through an interview process, uh, and the candidate actually did some Node.js development, and he was asking, hey, how, uh, how do you handle packages, updating packages? He says, well, we actually create a whitelist of packages. These are the packages that we trust. These are the packages that we reviewed, that we tested, and we hard code to those packages. If there are any updates, we have an entire process of validating that because mm-hmm. it has happened in the past. People has actually injected malicious stuff into NPM packages, or people have removed NPM packages, and it has happened in the past. And the thing is that it is a cascading effect where you if you're able to get somebody to accept a pull request on one of those key packages down the line, that's going to have a cascading effect through all of those. And the only thing is that you have to add enough code to probably cause an error or uh, or a vulnerability in that is useful in a chain of other mistakes for you to abuse. It doesn't have to be a glaring backdoor or big hole. Yeah, all it has to do is be a you know a CSER for a cross-site request forgery where it can take that data and, and you know either push it elsewhere without you noticing or uh, accept requests from a site that it shouldn't, right? So there's 
any number of ways that these sort of vulnerabilities can be presented into frameworks and libraries, especially through NPM. I mean, I've been doing some stuff with Vue.js and the number of things that get pulled down as kind of sub packages to the packages that I'm installing uh -huh. is, uh, it, it, it makes me cringe every time I do NPM install. Let me just put it that way. Wow. So, Keith, I think we got time for one last one, and the one that interests me out of out of there, your remaining was uh, your last story there, uh, number six. Yeah. So apparently, the CEO of Visa has told the world we will not process transactions in Bitcoin because it's not a payment system. I don't know what uh, century he's living in, but the quote that he gave was, "My take is that Bitcoin is much more today a commodity that somebody could invest in." And honestly, somewhat of a speculative commodity. Mm. Yeah, and people are using it as a payment system. Mm -hmm. Well, so. well let, <laughs> let, let's differentiate payment system from currency. Uh huh. Well, so yeah. the, the the other one I wanted so, uh, I wanted also note that too. The Visa CEO Alfred Kelly says we will only process fiat current based currency based transactions. And I might argue that Bitcoin's a fiat-based currency. Well, the, the how, problem how with Bitcoin that? is that you have multiple exchanges, and multiple exchanges may have different pricing on yeah. that Bitcoin also. Yep. Uh, so which one of those exchanges are the one that you're going to tie yourself to to process those? Uh, what are going to be the windows of valuation that you're going to, to use for Bitcoin being so volatile? Mm -hmm. We'll pick one, standardize on it, and publish I'm, it. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I, I can agree with them in terms that it's not a payment system. It is a currency. Uh, payment system for me, a system. It is a series of components tied together, working together. Uh, but when it comes to Bitcoin, I don't see that. I don't see a series of systems working together. I see a decentralized kind of process. So going on. interestingly, and, and I think that this kind of uh, adds an interesting twist to all of this, is there's the whole Bitfinex uh, situation where people are basically propping up this whole Bitfinex uh, trackable, um, I don't know if you would call it like stock per se, but a trackable metric that you can invest in that ties uh, Bitcoin to some degree or another to Tether. Uh, and the Tether in this case is like a equivalent to a U.S. dollar. And so uh, there has been some interesting stories lately about how effectively this whole idea of Tether, which is now trying to translate Bitcoin value into U.S. dollars to some degree or another, kind of like um, trying to think of the right term. There's an investment term for it uh, where you can like track the market value. It starts with an E. But in any case, um, the whole idea of it being volatile does not necessarily mean that it's not a, a currency or even a fiat currency for that matter. Or I mean, the U.S. System. dollar fluctuates, right, or a payment system for that matter. Uh, well, so I, maybe arguably, and I think that, Carlos, you're probably right, like paying with a debit card or paying with, um, I don't know how to put it, but payments is a payment system like Visa is a payment system, say. Someone open a window? Yeah. Well, <laughs> Somebody, somebody's audio just went crazy. Yeah, uh, but to Someone? that end, I, I definitely think that um, Bitcoin is a currency, and that 
Visa is not accepting it will probably drive more people to their competitors, which I don't know is a great thing for Visa. So, but, and, and I think ultimately that uh, Visa is going to take these payments via Bitcoin and maybe not even realize that they're doing it because it will be have been processed downstream by some other payment system, as it were. Now, uh, other than Visa, uh, who else is actually accepting Bitcoins from the Mastercard, American Express? I, I think so sorry, two, I think some of the there. the smaller places are doing a lot of stuff. I mean, you know, uh, uh, Amber Balde uh, has got some some fingers at Bank of America, uh, doing cryptocurrency type speculation and and some of those types of things. So there's some involvement there, but I'm not exactly sure what her road uh, her role is. Um, I heard from a friend recently that his uh, local credit union uh, is accepting. Um, both payment and deposits in Bitcoin at the credit union. Um, I know I've worked with um, one app that uh, allowed me to, I, I effectively wanted to, you know, I had the windfall with Bitcoin and I wanted to cash out and uh, couldn't necessarily find an easy way to cash out with cash, but I found something that was just as good as cash was uh, Amazon gift cards. Because, you know, we buy all sorts of stuff from Amazon. So uh, you could cash it out immediately to Amazon gift cards uh, and went right to Amazon and uh, had a credit balance with Amazon. So so interestingly as well, so if you think about it uh, from that perspective, Larry, like the credit union might accept payment or you know deposit in terms of Bitcoin, but who issues their debit cards? Probably Visa or MasterCard, uh -huh. right? So in a way, they are kind of transacting regardless. I, I just was looking up to see which companies actually accept Bitcoin in terms of payment or purchase. Uh, the one that stands out to me on this list that I pulled, and I haven't validated this, so this is unvalidated information from yeah. the internet, uh, but is Microsoft. <laughs> you can buy things on Xbox in the Windows Store with Bitcoin. Interesting. Interesting. Mm. Um, I, and, you know, some that are, that are very close to, to me that I would, would note, um, and, and one of the other reasons how I uh, liquidated some of my Bitcoin uh, was Adafruit uh, takes payment um, through BitPay of uh, Bitcoin for their products. Uh, I bought a bunch of stuff through, through Adafruit uh, with Bitcoin, and it's amazing when you have like $2,000 in Bitcoin, how hard it actually is to spend $2,000 as Adafruit. Um, I, I remember one time a listener offered me one Bitcoin many years ago and actually said no. Oh, boy, do I regret it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you take it now. Um, but yeah. uh, And one one of the other ones was um, uh, Bill Pollock at New Starch Press actually asked um, um, the other day was, hey, should I consider taking Bitcoin um, to for, for books? Yeah, I guess it's, uh, and I know that some bounty programs will also pay in Bitcoin, for example. So uh, for those researchers that managed to get paid in Bitcoin some time ago and have held onto their Bitcoin, that that SQL injection bug that was maybe $1,000 grew a whole lot in value over time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know, I, I know of a researcher in a back bounty that was able to find some bugs in a uh, Bitcoin exchange many years ago, and he actually got... A very large number of bitcoins from the exchange many years ago when there were a couple of hundred dollars only and um, he he should be pretty happy right now if he held on to them yeah yeah, yeah so. if he held on to them it, it was in the thousands of bitcoins so I hope he did Wow 
All right, gentlemen, with that note, I think that's all the time we've got. Let's uh, let's call it a night. Call it a day. Do our thing. Gentlemen, a pleasure to have you. Thanks pleasure for joining me. Pleasure to be here, Larry. Carlos, it's good to see you again. Hey, and, bro. And uh, hope you come back. Join us again soon. With that... Yeah, I can't hear you due to the music. What? What? Can't hear you due to the music. <laughs> we'll see you again, Carlos. With that, over and out!